We've been spending our Sunday mornings over the last couple of weeks in the book of Acts with a new study series entitled Transforming the Heart of the City. And over the last few weeks, we have noticed that the Apostle Paul, along with his colleague Barnabas, have been visiting some of the major cities in Asia Minor and sharing with them the love and grace of God. And so we're coming to Acts 14. We're breaking into the chapter at verse 8. To put things in context, they had visited Iconium. I'm going to say a little about that later in the terms of our study. And then they left Iconium and they come to Lystra and Derbe. So we're breaking in chapter 14 at verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. And Paul looked directly at him, saw that he'd faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he has left nations to go their own way, yet he has not left them without testimony. He has shown kindness. By giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season, he provides you with plenty of foods and fills your heart with joy. Even with those words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. And notice how it begins in verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. And you can imagine how tough that must be. Can you imagine being his parents when he had to be lifted and laid as an infant and then as a toddler and then as a teenager and then as a young man? That puts pressure on a household. You can just imagine it. And that would quite naturally mean he was incapable of holding down a job, which probably meant he had to go to the city gate and beg for a living. And that would mean this, that as people are coming and going through the city gate, they would know this man. They would know his story. They would know he was unable to walk from birth. And notice what comes next. Verse 9. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. And Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and he called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. 
Now, please understand the magnitude of what is taking place here. This is a supernatural act of God, where God not only touches this man's heart and soul and transforms him from the inside out, he touches his legs in that supernatural sense, and he gives him health and strength. And for the first time, he's able to walk. Now, can you imagine how many times he would repeat that story throughout his adult life? Can you imagine at family gatherings and great events when people would say to him, now, tell us again about what happened when Paul came to Lystra, and the joy and the thrill he would have of telling the story. And we know the story is not true simply because it impacted the man, but look at the response of the crowd. This is a significant number of people, and they realize what's happened. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought, booth, excuse me, brought bulls and wreaths to sacrifice. And Paul, fully understanding what takes place, says, stop, please understand, don't misinterpret what has taken place here. And then Paul begins to explain that they are not gods, that they have no power in and of themselves. And then Paul lays out for them wonderfully the love and grace of God. And he says, we long for you to turn from worthless things to the living God. God. That's his message. And in fact, what he does is he appeals to nature. And I can imagine him pointing towards the sky and looking to the west or the south to point towards the sea. And he talks in terms of what theologians today call general revelation. Do you remember Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. And night after night, they proclaim His knowledge. In other words, Paul is saying, look at the created order around you. Do you think that's by chance? No. God, in all of His love and grace, created this for you to enjoy. And he goes further and he says, he gives you seasons to enjoy and food to refresh you, and he fills the soul with joy. That's what he's doing. And the question, of course, is this. When the miracle took place and this man's life was utterly transformed, why do the crowd immediately think that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes? Well, who were gods of the ancient world? Back then, there was a legend in that area, and archaeologists can tell us this for this purpose. They have found the remains of an altar there that was inscribed to Zeus and Hermes. They were worshipped in that region. And so that's why they immediately think of Zeus and Hermes. And the story was told that Zeus and Hermes came from the heavens to walk among men, try to get accommodation 
uh, one evening, couldn't find it. Several people turned them away. Eventually, an elderly couple took them in, gave them sustenance for the night and a place to sleep because, of course, the gods need a good warm bed in the evening. You know that. And please forgive my slightly tongue-in-cheek remark there. And so that's what was going on. And they destroyed those who refused them hospitality and looked after and blessed this elderly couple. So that was the legend at the time. And that's why we thought of Zeus and Hermes. Now, you might be here this morning and saying, Richard, I appreciate all you've had to say. I always appreciate the geography lesson. That helps me get things in context. Thank you for the archaeological sidebar and the information about Zeus and Hermes. I get that. But I have a question. And my question is pretty basic. In fact, it is so basic, I'm actually embarrassed to ask it. But let me ask anyway. Here is my question. Richard, on a Sunday morning, when you talk about faith, what does that actually mean? What are you talking about? Be specific. Tie it down. Explain to me what you mean when you talk about faith. Now, that's a great question. And it's a great question for this reason. Sometimes, in our 21st century culture, faith will be characterized as belief in something we know not to be true. And sometimes you'll see it and hear it in the popular culture when someone will slap someone on the shoulder and say, never mind, just have enough faith and it will be fine. Well, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about faith. And that's not how the New Testament describes faith. Mark Twain, something of a literary genius, he said this about faith. He said, faith is believing what you know ain't true. Faith is believing what you know ain't true. And that has taken on a popular misunderstanding and misinterpretation of faith. Now, let me pause for a second and take you back into the text of Scripture. As we go back to verse 8, where the story began this morning, verse 9 says, this is the man who had been crippled since birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped and began to walk. Now, notice what the passage says. Paul looked at him and saw he had faith to believe. Let me explain what we mean when we talk about faith. Because the culture has misinterpreted misunderstood, and then mischaracterized what the New Testament talks about when it talks about faith. Now, the Oxford English Dictionary, if you were to buy it today, comes in 27 volumes. It is $4,500 should you want to buy it. I, with my Scottish blood, read the Oxford Shorter Dictionary, and it is $4.99 from Walmart, which I find just that's about my level. Now, the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the repository of good English across the world, defines faith this way. They say, 
faith means fidelity. It comes from the Latin word fide. It means faithfulness. It means trust and reliance. There is no indication in there about belief in something you know not to be true. In fact, it's the very opposite. It is fidelity, trust, reliance. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Imagine you are 32 years old. You're a mom. You have a little one, Thomas, who's in kindergarten. He's due to be picked up just after 12. You dropped him at 9, and normally you're around 9 till 12, three mornings a week. And then an emergency breaks out in your office, and you're the only person who can deal with it. And the consensus among the staff is that you will need to work till 3 o'clock or maybe later to deal with it. And immediately in your mind, you are asking, who can I get to pick up Thomas from kindergarten? And so you phone your parents. And your parents say, sure, we'll be glad to pick him up because they are, because Thomas is the apple of their eye. And so you have the conversation, and you hang up. And what is the first thing you do after you hang up? You then whew, relax. And you relax because you have your faith in someone not something you know not to be true, but you are trusting someone. You are depending on them. Your parents have picked up Thomas in the past. The school know them. They recognize their vehicle. They'll be glad to hand him over when you go in to pick him up. You've picked him up they've picked him up several times in the past. They know exactly what Thomas will have for his lunch. It's mac and cheese, of course. Why else would he have anything else? They have a good car seat for him. They drive safely, and all is well. And so you don't give it another thought because you have reliance in someone you trust. Not in something you know not to be true, but in someone. Last Sunday morning, after the morning service, I rushed home, changed my clothes, dropped my bag, then headed for the airport. I was due in Denver, Colorado on Sunday evening. I was there Sunday evening, Monday, and Tuesday. Got home late on Tuesday. But when I checked in, I was asked for two things. Number one, what is your confirmation code? And number two, let me see your driver's license or passport. They wanted to see government-issued ID because they knew that when I showed them a government issue ID, it could be trusted. No one was expressing faith in something they knew not to be true. But the opposite was the case. The lady who was checking me in was very comfortable trusting that the DVLC had got it right. They didn't then say, no, I'm not so sure this is you. Well, actually, you've put on a little weight. And let me see your glasses off. And they didn't go there. They simply said, we trust it. That's faith. That's what the New Testament is talking about. It's not faith in something you know not to be true. It is faith in someone who loves you and cares for you and whom you know to be true and can be relied on. That's what was going on in this miracle. What does the passage say? 
Paul looked at him and saw he had faith to be healed. That is genuine, real, authentic, credible faith. Now, let me try and wrap things up this morning. I'm jumping a couple of my slides, so please forgive me. When people say to me, Richard, why are you in the ministry? I begin by telling them that when I was 17, I met a girl who's now my wife. We've been married for 37 years. When Ruth tells me she loves me, I would stake my life on that. Ruth is not so sure, but I would stake my life on it. When we were dating, she'd take me to the odd evening service. She'd take me to what was called on Sunday night youth fellowship. And we would open up the scriptures and study them together. I have to tell you this. I was seriously uncomfortable because I knew that with Ruth, her faith was genuine. It was real. When she prayed, she was talking to someone. There was no belief in something she knew not to be true. It was the opposite. One evening, she had a discussion with me, and she said to me, Richard, are you a Christian? I said to her, well, I was born in a Christian country. I went to Christian school. I know my Bible stories. And she said, for me, a Christian is someone who has Christ living in their heart. I remember that like it was yesterday, because she was talking about a relationship. Not faith in something she knew not to be true, but a person, real, genuine faith. Several months later, I was having a birthday, and I asked her for a Bible for my birthday. And she said, no, because she's tough sometimes. And she said, you'll not read it. And I said, I promise, I will, I'll read it. And she said, no, I don't think you will. And on my birthday, I was looking for a Bible, and it didn't come and didn't come and didn't come. And then after giving me several presents, she produced from behind her back a Bible. I was sharing a room with my young brother, and that night I would pull the covers up and make a tent and get out a flashlight and trying to make sense of the New Testament. Here was the Spirit of God drawing me and drawing me into a relationship with himself. And one Monday evening, they took me to hear an Argentinian evangelist called Luis Palau. I had no idea what an evangelist was. I sat there that night right on the edge of my chair, and I remember saying to myself, and if you're anything like me, I have these conversations in my head multiple times a day, and I remember saying to myself, that's it. I am going to listen. Then no one can tell me I didn't give this Christianity a chance. And I sat there with my arms folded. And he turned to Romans chapter 10 looked at a passage of Scripture that said, if you believe in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead, you will be saved. And at the end of that service, he said, at this closing hymn, 
If you want to know what it means to have a genuine relationship with Christ, I want you to get up out of your seat, walk forward, stand here at the front, and a counselor will speak to you. It's almost identical to a Billy Graham rally. And I walked forward that night with tears rolling down my face. I hadn't cried since I was three years old. Now I was 20. And there was deep, profound grief and sorrow for my sin. But in the midst of all of the sorrow and the conviction was overwhelming joy because I knew that I was loved, that He cared for me, that He'd forgiven me, and that I would walk with Him the rest of my days. I went home that night with a bright orange gospel of Mark given to me by my counselor. I remember as I was dozing off to sleep, the last thing I said was, Father, in some small way, show me tomorrow that this step of faith I've taken tonight is real. And at 6.30 the following morning, when the alarm went off, they were playing How Great Thou Art on public radio, and I nearly fell out of bed. Here was an answer to prayer immediately. I wasn't even out of bed. I got changed, went off to the railway station. I was working in construction at the time. It was the 12th of May, 1980. I got on the train. The train had gone a couple of stops. And there are some unwritten rules in public transport that if you go into a carriage, in a railway carriage, and there is someone sitting, you don't sit beside them. You go as far from them as possible to give them space and you a little space and you sit there. And after two stops, when the carriage was pretty much empty, a man came on and sat right beside me. Not across from me, not two seats, right beside me. Now, in Scotland, we have, just as you have here in the south, one or two words that are useful on every occasion. And in Scotland, the word is A-Y-E-I. And so you might meet someone in the street. As you're passing, they'll say, hi there. How's your folks? And you'll say, aye, and walk right on. Or if you meet you and you talk about the weather and you don't have time, you'll say, aye, aye, and walk right on. So he sat beside me and he looked over and he said, morning. And I said, aye, and tried to move along the bench a little because this guy was far too close. And he said, uh, nice to see we have something in common. And I was reading this bright orange gospel of Mark that was pulsating throughout the carriage. You couldn't miss it. And I looked at him, and I looked at me, and I had on coveralls and construction jacket and boots, and he had on a three-piece suit and an overcoat. And I looked at him, and I looked at me, and I looked at him, and he realizes he's dealing with an imbecile. It's as simple as that. He gets it. He understands I and I move along a little more. And he puts his hand in his briefcase and he says, I see you're reading your Bible. I have one as well. And I sometimes read it going into the office in the morning. And I heard myself praying the night before, Father, if you are there in some small way, show me. This is not faith in something we know not to be true. This is faith in one who is true, is deeply in love with his children, who longs to draw us into a relationship with him. And please do not misunderstand this. It has been like that.
for the rest of my Christian life since, that He loves me, that He answers my prayer, and He leads and guides and directs me. And there are times I get it badly wrong, and I have to rush back to Him and ask for His forgiveness and His restraining hand and His shaping hand in my life, and we begin afresh. This is not about faith in something we know not to be true. It is the opposite. It is credible, trustworthy, reliant faith in someone who is exactly that. That's real faith. My prayer for you this week is this, that if you do not know Him, you will seek Him with all your heart. And what? Cast yourself before him. Father, I don't know you. I need you. Change me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Enable me to trust you and walk with you. That's at the heart of the gospel. That's what transformed this man's life. That's what continues to impact lives throughout the book of Acts. God was at work. And oh, how we long for him to work in that way today. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this incredible passage of Scripture. Enable us, please, this week with the challenges that lie before us to forsake all others and trust in You. Father, bless us, please, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.